while we know that systemic racism is real and we know that funders aren't really supporting and investing in black communities, when you see the data, it's staggering. And it's amazing to me how complacent we can get sometimes, even in our advocacy. This is Michelle Shireen Murray, your host and fellow traveler on The Ethical Rainmaker, a podcast exploring topics we don't often visit in nonprofits and philanthropy, including the places we can step into our power or step out of the way. So one of the biggest areas of interest right now on the CCF Slack channel, and that's community-centric fundraising, is hashtag Disrupt Community Foundations. Oddly, many community foundations are not listening to their communities. These foundations can look a lot of ways, but in much of the U.S., community foundations do not reflect the communities they purport to serve. Foundation board and staff leadership positions are coveted for the power that can be wielded. You'll often see upcoming or former politicians in those seats or corporate CEOs, definitely private equity execs, and often those boards are heavily white men and now women, all wealthy. Not that the token Black, Indigenous, or person of color on a board necessarily shifts its politics. As today's guest says, it's not just a representation conversation, it's about the result you produce. Here in Seattle, we're seeing an interesting reckoning as we learn that the Seattle Police Foundation's biggest and most consistent donors aren't just corporations like Starbucks and Amazon, but our local community foundation, the Seattle Foundation, which is now being called to the carpet for investing almost a million dollars in police. More on that in the show notes. My guest today is Heather Infantry, a righteous executive director who'd had enough and went up against the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. Heartless, heated, my energy depleted, holding heavy, about to break the levee. In May 2020, Heather took to social media to call on the foundation's exclusion of Black arts organizations from its first round of COVID relief funding, a pot of more than half a million dollars. Think about it. Atlanta is a majority Black city. Zero dollars to Black organizations. Out of $580,000. Heather organized an inquiry into the foundation's grant-making practices and revealed a 27-year history of grant-making primarily to white organizations and instituting grant application requirements that disqualified most Black-led organizations. Heather has led, pushed, advocated, strategized, organized, and courageously executed an overhaul. Not only that, but she's been a successful fundraiser in the field for 20 years and is currently the executive director at Generator, an Atlanta, Georgia-based nonprofit committed to creating a space for social change where everyday people have a voice in working towards a shared vision for a better tomorrow. Today, Heather joins us to share her wisdom and to tell us how it all went down and how she galvanized her community to hold the foundation accountable. Welcome, Heather. Thanks, Michelle, for having me. Yes, now I'm thrilled. There are so many people that want to hear about how you pulled this off because there is so much displeasure around what's happening at community foundations. It's an honor to have you on the show. It was an honor to hear about the work that you've been doing. But before we get into the story of how you led the complete disruption of your local community foundation, what do we as listeners need to know about Atlanta, Georgia? Mm, great question. And it's an important context as we launch into this conversation. So as you mentioned in your introduction, Atlanta is a majority black city. Uh, when I relocated to Atlanta in 95 from Toronto, Canada, the population was about 70 percent black. Mm. Right now, it's about 51 percent as we have um, experienced our own uh, dealings with gentrification as in-town living has become more inviting and more corporate folks are relocating their headquarters to uh, the inner city. We're also the place for um, civil rights. We have a huge history with this being the birthplace of Martin Luther King. And we've always enjoyed, at least since the 70s, the benefit of Black political leadership with Maynard Jackson being our first Black mayor back in the late 70s. So Black folks prosperous Black folks have always been highly visible in our community. But at the same time, we are also switching first and second place as being one of the most unequal cities in our country. 
the economic disparity between those who have and have not have created um, such despair in so many of our communities that it is stated that you have a 4% chance of actually mitigating yourself out of poverty if you find yourself in one of our most undesirable zip codes. Wow. So the duality of being this place that has been coined the Black Mecca and is a really important cultural icon and pillar, right? Atlanta is influencing um, all variety of art and culture. And yet and still, when we look beyond the veil, we see that we are a community in such tremendous crisis, particularly as it relates to the livelihood and well-being of our Black citizens and residents. That's great context. Thank you. So here we are in May 2020 in the midst of a global pandemic. You know, I've never experienced or witnessed anything like this in the time that I've been alive. And it's May, so we have been in the pandemic for several months now, and it has um, become apparent to all of us that read the news that Mm -hmm. the uh, coronavirus is disproportionately impacting Black communities and impacting them because of a result of the systemic structural racist systems that have marginalized and disenfranchised communities from every aspect of housing, health, education, employment, all of it. Mm-hmm. Coronavirus is just is revealing that in a way that is so visceral and 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 it's it's impacting people's livelihood, their ability to actually continue to breathe and take in air. That's right. And so the Community Foundation, like I imagine community foundations all over the the country, did their part to be in response, right? They were galvanizing their resources, calling on um, corporate partners and other uh, funding institutions to pull resources together in order to provide this emergency assistance at a time where we didn't know what the future looked like. We We just knew people were hemorrhaging in the worst of ways and that they needed help. Mm-hmm. And community foundations have money. And so that was the way that they were going to do it. The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, in the midst of all of this, made a special designation to lift up arts and cultural communities, which should be commended because there's such a big concern. You know, we sometimes think like arts and culture in the midst of a health crisis like this. Why does it matter when people can't eat and they don't have a place to live? So I really applaud them for making this specific designation. Where I find fault and where the call out came out was that in their first deployment, as you said in um, your introduction, uh, $580,000 went out the door. Not one of them, not one of those dollars were, was allocated to a black organization. And so the foundation in the midst of a pandemic, when we know it's disproportionately impacting black communities, um, you know, sends out a round of grants. And, I, and at the at the time that I made the call out, you know, I lifted this up on on Facebook, right? Just out of frustration, just to be flip, just to say, like, what the fuck, right? Yeah. Not intending, not intending to do anything about it. If anything, it was just a affirmation for me uh, that this might be a really good moment to think about creating affinity space where we're not reliant on a structure like the Community Foundation. Maybe we want to move internally into thinking about how we can resource ourselves independent of them. But something happened in the weekend that um, transpired over the course of um, this post. People weighed in, like many people weighed in. I think over the course of three days, there was 100 plus comments. And it wasn't that people, it wasn't just that people weighed in and shared their frustration or had their own questions about what was going on. It was who weighed in. It was former employees of the Community Foundation that shared their perspective Mm. about um, who's at the table helping to make their decisions. It was the Community Foundation itself replying within the first couple of hours of the post saying, their um, sort of institutional line of, hey, this fund is open for everyone. We have a diverse community of people that help us to make and inform our decisions. We have another round of funding coming on. Um, You're all encouraged to apply. It was very institutional. It didn't acknowledge what was blatant. So typical. Yeah, it was just (laughs) so typical. (laughs) 
We're talking about disrupting community foundations with Atlanta-based fundraiser, executive director, and community organizer, Heather Infantry, right now on The Ethical Rainmaker. Do you love the topics we're bringing you? The best way to support this pod is by subscribing, sharing it with colleagues, or contributing on our new Patreon. Learn more at theethicalrainmaker.com. As you listen to the rest of this episode, think about what you know about your own local community foundation and how they can improve. They were responding. Yeah, they were responding. And then folks started to call me offline. Folks that I think are fearful of speaking publicly about grievances like this. Mm -hmm. So it was my colleagues that called and text and sent a, a message to me on social media sharing the challenges and experiences that they've had and letting me know that this wasn't the first time that they had noted a practice like this and had brought it to the attention of the community foundation, but that it had been, um, you know, it fell on deaf ears or people, you know, pushed back mm-hmm. and that there was just this fear that to call this out publicly in any kind of way would have, you know, negative repercussions on their ability to fundraise for themselves. Right. And so I um, decided to reach out to a reporter here in Atlanta, Maria Saporta. She is um, sort of like an Atlanta institution. She's been covering city politics and social issues since forever. She had written about the initial announcement of funding, and I reached out to her to say, hey, um, you may not know this, but that round of funding didn't include any Black organizations. And you may want to look into this further, particularly because the CEO of the foundation at the time was starting to champion racial equity and was calling on her colleagues and peers to address race, Um, which was kind of challenging for me because it was sort of like this impassioned plea to, to challenge and face these things without having taken any personal accountability for the time that she had been running the foundation for the past 40 plus years. So you reached out to a reporter after calling out the Community Foundation for not doing any emergency relief funding for a single Black arts organization in Atlanta. You got a pretty weak response from the Community Foundation itself. How did this reporter, Maria Saporta, tackle the story? Yeah, and the response to my suggestion to look into it further was dismissed. And uh, Maria came in defense of the Community Foundation and offered a wish that, um, you know, hopefully other folks will will get some funding in the subsequent rounds. And that was incredibly concerning to me because if I've got folks who have been expressing their concerns around the funding practices of this organization and nothing's moved, and then I've got a reporter whose job is to be objective and, and to lift up the issues in our community, not taking an interest in this story, well, then how do we turn the tide on this issue, particularly given the dire situation we find ourselves with the coronavirus? And so sometimes you are thrust into a leadership position that you hadn't anticipated being. And that's Mm. where I found myself. That's where I found myself. I found myself immediately going into this, um, you know, mobilize, strategize kind of mindset. And my first step uh, in doing that, once I decided that I was going to, to, to lead this effort, was to mobilize the Black arts community. Because while I knew some of the players, some of the organizations, I didn't know, I didn't know the totality of it. I didn't know the extent of it. And so over the course of two weeks, I would call on the folks that I did know across discipline to tell me like, hey, here's a list I've generated. Like, who am I missing? And it was actually a a very delightful exercise to discover all of these organizations that, you know, had been here for a long time. I'm discovering organizations south of the city in counties, you know, two counties away from me that have been in existence for 25, 30 years that I'd never heard about. Hmm. And so it was very eye opening for me just to, um, you know, learn the scale and scope of of the Black arts community in Atlanta much broader and deeper than I had experienced in, in all the time that I've been here. Wow. Now, fast forward, I'm this is beginning to to percolate. And now we hear about George Floyd. 
And a week later, the city of Atlanta would erupt like other cities across the country in protest. And that protest in some places would lead to violence and and damage of buildings. And it's interesting in Atlanta, you know, that Friday that we learned about George Floyd's killing, Atlanta started out in that afternoon with a peaceful port protest from our state capitol to downtown. And then later on that evening, it erupted into like serious chaos. And a reporter recently told me that this is an interesting thing to know in our city because Atlanta, even when Dr. King was assassinated, is one of the few cities that didn't erupt in violence. Wow. And a lot of people um, sort of chalk that up to what we call here as the Atlanta way. Mm. The Atlanta way being this um, sort of like... um, a quiet, unspoken agreement between black and white leadership in the city to deal with race issues behind closed doors. That black leadership has had a practice of ensuring civility in in moments like this. So on that Friday, when folks were tearing down the CNN headquarters and breaking windows, the Atlanta police department wasn't prepared for it. They had sent plain clothes police officers to monitor the activity, whereas law enforcement in other cities were bringing in riot folks. And in some cases tanks, because right. we just have a tradition and a history of, of peacefully raising our voices. And so it, it it's a, it's a shift in our consciousness as a city with a majority um, black population with black folks that have done well that are highly visible to then erupt in this kind of way. Mm. And then we would see Rashad Brooks. And then we would, you know, begin to understand what was happening with Breonna Taylor's case and all the other cases, subsequent cases that have come into the fold that have happened, you know, years before and, and within this time. And so, you know, the community foundation finds itself in a time that's just not from an optic standpoint, this is just not the moment to render the Black community invisible, particularly with emergency funding. I'm Michelle Shireen Miri. The Ethical Rainmaker is brought to you by our consulting collective, Freedom Conspiracy. Visit freedom-conspiracy.com to take your ethical fundraising to the next level. Bring values-aligned practices to your growth opportunities at hand. Atlanta, and particularly this community foundation, found itself in a time that you described as making really poor funding decisions, the time of a pandemic, and a time of racial uprising that was actually rare for Atlanta in the way that it was going down. And that's where the foundation found itself. That's where the foundation found itself. And that's where I found myself in trying to strategize what I needed to see happen at the community foundation that would, one, address the urgent need of the community, and two, could be the starting point of some sort of longer-term change. And I knew that the Black Lives Matter movement was an opportunity to leverage and amplify, particularly as every corporation, every business, in its reaction to what was happening, was making some claim of solidarity. The Community Foundation themselves issued a statement where they Mm. doubled down and they used the term black, not Mm. BIPOC, not POC, but they spoke about their solidarity with black Atlantans and the atrocities of police violence in our community, which was and which was an opportunity, I think, to hold them to something and that the urgency of the moment was the opening in Uh, to examine and scrutinize um, the practices of of the Community Foundation, not just as relates to arts funding, but overall with its funding. And along the way, I would learn other things. I mean, I would learn about the 27-year history. I didn't know that at the onset. I didn't know that on the onset of calling this out, that for 27 years, the Arts Fund has been mostly supporting white institutions at Mm. the level of 87%. So when you look back at those years in which they had funded organizations, there were years where they didn't support Black. This wasn't the first time. It was just the right. first time during a pandemic. Right. And so 
while we know these things, like while we know while we know that systemic racism is real and we know that funders aren't really supporting and investing in black communities, when you see the data, when you see the data, it's staggering. And it's amazing to me how complacent we can get sometimes, even in our advocacy, right? Yep. I mean, 27 years, like 27 years went by and we never once asked the question. The Community Foundation never asked the question. Right. And not even ask the question, like, are we supporting black organizations? Just the question of like, well, who are we supporting? Right. Geographically, racially, by discipline. Right. So many points at which we could have intervened and turned a different course. Which I think speaks to how resilient racism can be. You know, it can Mm -hmm. do its thing under the shadowy, shadowy veil and and we're not any wiser to it until we get to a crisis point, which, you know, has been produced with this pandemic, you know, combined with Black Lives Matter. And then, you know, shit hits the fan. And isn't it isn't it interesting that in a society so focused on money, you know, in a capitalist society so focused on money, that so many of these foundations have not actually shared any transparency with the communities that they purport to serve. Um, And oftentimes, community may have asked for it. But in the example of um, in in Seattle, there was actually like a what I the story I heard was that there was a data nerd that was really focused on defunding the police here, and went and looked at all the funding sources for the Seattle Police Foundation and saw that fact that the that the Seattle Foundation was actually a bigger contributor than Microsoft and Amazon and the, or Starbucks and Amazon, and I think that. The mm. fact that we didn't know that, you know, mm. where, where we could actually look at those records uh, uh, through 990s and the fact that we didn't know that our community has been complacent and not doing research and not pushing foundations harder to be totally transparent. It should just be like a basic requirement of being a foundation that you are reporting out exactly where the money is coming from. Um, you know, because in many cases, our foundations made their money from extractive practices, you know, or they or they have a lot of families that have DAFs there. And it would be great to know where that money came from. And then, uh, you know, where they're investing it, and what they might be perpetuating. The Seattle Foundation, for example, sits on over a billion dollars. And where is that money being invested? I personally have no idea what is being perpetuated by the investment of that money. And then we have the spending of it, which we haven't been made aware of. And that's both complacency on the behalf of our communities that should know and should be pushing hard every time to know where that money is going and to uncover facts like this 27 years in a majority black city with funding going to majority white institutions. It's wild. Around arts, which historically, that's what black folks do. Like culture, creativity, that's what we do. But I think what you're speaking about... um, it, it it also addresses the the power imbalance, right? To be a donor, to be a funder comes with so many protections, right? Yeah. And it's and there's so many advantages and benefits. When we look at the donor advised funds at the community foundation, it's all shroud in secrecy. You can't know who they are. We know that they have a thousand funds there. But you're not allowed to know who they are because we have to protect their identity so that they're not bombarded with all of these requests from people. Right. And the sort of um, tax codes that are in place to benefit them and provide shelter in terms of the taxes they have to pay, pay, you know, makes it, you know, sway to their advantage. They are under no scrutiny at all. All. And the only reason why we even have leverage in this conversation with the Community Foundation is that it is mandated to support the community. But Atlanta is full of private family foundations. Mm. You really don't have any traction. A family can do with their money what they want. Right. There's no interrogation of that. There's no interrogation of that. And even with the Community Foundation, this advocacy that we're doing is small. It's so tiny in terms of the resources that we are vying for. When you look at the when you look at their larger portfolio, like the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta, for example, has one point one or one point two billion dollars in assets, of which ninety five percent of it is locked up in these donor advised funds. Wow! So yeah, as right. an outsider, you don't have access to it. You know they can make their contributions 
at whim to whatever, regardless of what the the priority guidelines are of the foundation itself. So the discretionary funding that the foundation has, I think on average is about $3 million a year. That's pennies when you look at the scale of problems that we're trying to address. Right. You can't do anything with a million, $3 million. Like you really can't. But $130 million, which which is what they allocate each year through their donor advised funds. Now, that's a different conversation. That could eradicate a lot of the things that we struggle and deal with in our city. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. DAFs, DAFs may be a whole nother episode for a future podcast because there are so many things that we can do. We can ask. Um, that there be a limit on the amount of time a DAF is allowed to stay. That we can, we can, we can. Community foundations can request a certain percentage, you know, go towards uh, towards philanthropic causes every year. They can set their own requirements for DAF holders, but I know that they're often afraid that that will lose them business from places like Schwab, Charitable Trust, etc. But our community foundations should be standing for community. And what that means is standing by a set of values that is actually meant to serve your community, not hoard all this wealth and hold back from it. We're talking with Heather Infantry, an Atlanta, Georgia-based foundation reform advocate, right now on The Ethical Rainmaker. To learn more about Heather, you can find her on LinkedIn or hit her up at heather at generatorcity.org. Find info in the show notes at theethicalrainmaker.com. And the impact that you learned about was that there had been 27 years of not funding enough Black organizations um, in a majority Black city. And that of the of, you had reported that of the $130 million that they give out per year, mm-hmm. 6 to 15% goes to Black organizations. So everyone is losing. And what happened next? You had said that there was a CEO that was in place that was talking about equity, but not walking the walk. Mm-hmm. What were the steps that happened next to create the type of change you created and what kind of change have you created? Yeah. So, uh, you know, within a week of that call out and, you know, reaching out to the reporter and and getting this, this feedback and deciding that this was something that I was going to take on, the Community Foundation... Um, replied to the community with um, a post on social media and through their various channels that they that they hear the black community, that they've been inundated with all of these calls and that they hear the black community and that they are taking a pause from how they are doing their um, grant making around this particular fund so that they can make some better decisions going forward, right? And that same reporter who had dismissed um, any interest in this story, um, subsequently wrote an article in response to the Community Foundation's post. And that didn't sit well with me. Again, the the post didn't take any sort of like personal accountability. And I knew that I couldn't leave it with them to be the narrators of this story, that this story had to live within the community that's right. um, for which we had endured the harm. And so in response to that, with a couple of colleagues, wrote a letter addressed to the leadership of the foundation, articulating you know, our frustration, highlighting you know, what we understand about the data as it relates to this fund, and that we have very little confidence in their ability, given their track record, to do better than what they have done. That's right. And that they need some guidance from us, those who have mm-hmm. been impacted. And so invited them to participate in a virtual Zoom call with the Black Arts community. And mm. so in that um, meeting, we had the CEO of the foundation at the time, Alicia Phillip, the board chair, Susan Grant, and their VP of community, Lita Party, with over 70 representatives from the Black Arts community. And we had sent them some questions in advance that we wanted them to think about and had some very clear recommendations of what we wanted to see going forward. Um, So we talked over the course of 90 minutes. Again, there wasn't that accountability piece, the owning of it. You know, the extent of the apology that was issued was that um, the CEO had sort of gotten ahead of the foundation in talking about the importance of equity um, given that the foundation was getting ready organizationally to roll out some work, but that 
you know, she was preemptive in um, talking about the work before the organization was ready to reveal it. That was pretty much the extent. Mm. And in preparation for that call, you know, I would later learn that the review committee for the Arts Fund at this time was comprised of all white folks with the exception of one South Asian man. Mm. And so when I asked them about that, you know, when you claim that you are being advised by a diverse committee of folks and they essentially didn't have anything to say about that, except that because of the urgency of the moment, they didn't have time to assemble the kind of committee that could be more reflective, which felt like that just that felt dishonest. Yeah, um, definitely. It, it, it felt like, yeah, it, it felt dishonest. And, and I had to address that, too, in the moment um, for what it was. And essentially, you know, they said they don't have a strong tie to the black community, that they wanted to hear what, what the needs were um, and all those things. And so during the course of that call, the recommendation was that you know, in the subsequent round of funding, that an equivalent amount of dollars go to black arts organizations, if not all, because at that point, there was about a million one that was remaining in the fund for this cycle of funding. We wanted them to revisit their application requirements, everything from, you know, lowering the budget size minimum, you had to be $50,000 or above. When I took inventory, a lot of the black organizations that I was learning and discovering about, we have maybe three or four organizations that have budgets over a million. The majority of our folks have budgets under 350 and a substantial number of them are under $50,000. So you're missing a whole swath of the community just right. by cutting off the budget minimum. So we wanted them to reexamine that. We wanted them to do away with the financial audit, that the financial audit does not provide them the kind of... Um, you know, confidence in, in the business acumen of, of, a, of a company um, and that to put the burden of paying for this very expensive document during the midst of a pandemic just seemed unfair and unjust. And then the other requirement that we had took issue with was around um, full-time W-2 personnel, that you had to have at least one full-time employee for which you were paying payroll taxes and all these benefits to. Wow. And for a lot of black organizations, it's just not a reality. They haven't been able to build the capacity because of the lack of funding that they get in order to set themselves up for which this can be full time work. And a lot of folks were supplementing this this work through other jobs that they had. Right. And so um, that was the recommendation that we wanted to see going forward. And then in terms of our our long-term interest, we wanted them to convene a Black task force to leverage the work of the Arts Fund to touch this work of equity that they were beginning to lift up. That in investing in Black arts and lifting up Black voices, that you would be able to find better intersections with your other work if they were at the table advising and informing that. Yes. And so that's what we asked for. And I made it very clear to them that, you know, in my leadership of this effort, that I too was preparing a response in the event that they weren't going to um, follow through on our recommendations. I wanted it to be very explicitly clear that this wasn't a hopeful moment for what they would do. But this was the expectation and standard for what had to be done and that there would be repercussions in the event that they fell short of that. I needed to articulate that. I needed for this advocacy effort to be on our terms and for us to continue to control the narrative of of this whole thing. And so they went away. They went away behind closed doors and started figuring some things out. They took much longer than I felt that they needed to take and that they should take, which only gave me more time to stew on it. And over the five or so weeks um, that it took for them to post their new guidelines, I took to my my network. You know, I've been in fundraising for a long time, so I've gotten to know many wealthy people, several folks that have substantial funds at the Community Foundation. I reached out to those relationships and I said, listen, I need for you to apply pressure 
if you believe in this community, if you believe that we can do better than this, I need you to apply pressure. And essentially, all I, I didn't need, I didn't necessarily need them to take a side or a position, but what I needed them to communicate to the leadership, the, the upper leadership of the foundation, what I needed them to communicate to them was that they were aware of this issue, that they were concerned about it, and that they were watching how the foundation responded. They were watching closely to how the foundation responded. I needed the foundation to feel like there were many eyes on them. Yeah compelling them to do the right thing. And so with every day that they took, it was just, well, who else can I reach out to? Who else do I know? Like what relationship haven't I tapped? And I just, you know, galvanizing all of those folks as best, um, as best I could and, and telling the story of black arts, you know, telling them about, you know, the history of this arts fund, telling them about like who is in this community and, and why it's important for us to celebrate that. I feel like this is such an important playbook for folks to follow along with. We could all learn here. You noticed a problem with inequity and racism in arts funding within the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta during this pandemic. You called it out publicly. Then you saw the energy surrounding the global Black Lives Matter protests as an opportunity to apply further pressure and create change. You also discovered that this wasn't a one-time issue, but almost three decades of Black organizations getting passed over from this foundation. You kept up the pressure, and you worked in community, bringing specific demands to the board so that Black organizations would no longer be left out or denied, and you backed it all up with data. After many weeks, the Community Foundation finally responded to how they were going to make things right going forward, but it wasn't clear if they would actually change. So what happened? So then we get to a point where they post their guidelines and they have done away with all of those requirements and they've gone a step further. They've gone a step further and they've said that in this final round of funding, we are going to prioritize Black-led and Black-founded organizations. What that means, I don't know if it was a percentage they didn't articulate, but in doing away with those uh, initial barriers, they also said that we are going to, for the first time, we are going to allow organizations that apply to request up to 30% of their prior year budget, which is absolutely phenomenal because yeah, usually huge. foundations only do about 10% of your operating budget. And here they were going to do 30%, which is a game changer if you have an operating budget under $50,000. Right. Particularly in this moment. So they did that. And so they posted those guidelines. They had about a, like a three-week window before you could get your application in. And so then I went about the very difficult, laborious task of making sure every Black organization that I was in contact with that could apply, applied. And yeah. um, offered my help wherever I could. And the Monday before the applications were due, I think I was aware of five organizations that had submitted. And by the time we got to Wednesday, we had 28 that I was aware of. Mm, that's 28 awesome. black organizations, the majority of whom had never applied, requesting a collective total of about $1.6 million. Mm -hmm. And then there would be another five weeks in which we'd have to wait until the foundation would make their decision at the end of August, which meant that I had more time to stew and fester on this thing. And so the last little piece of this now was to appeal to my white art colleagues. And by this time, John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis had passed away and he, um, you know, notable civil rights activist and leader who at 17 years old was part of Martin Luther King's entourage and is known for coining the term good trouble, necessary trouble passed away. And as I was revisiting his work and looking at his documentary by the same name, I was reminded, I was reminded of the white folks who stood beside him being beat up the side of their head, um, losing their life in some cases on those freedom rides. And I was reminded of the kind of sacrifices that come at the expense of upholding our humanity. And so that is when I took that model and I presented to my white arts colleagues the opportunity for them, if they had applied to the arts fund, to withdraw their application so that they weren't wow. uh, taking up any of the resources, that we could help the foundation do the right thing, that this was a moment for wow. Black arts and that we needed wow. to stand in solidarity. Mm -hmm. And 
I would say, unfortunately, a good number of my colleagues were silent, which I guess is to be expected, even Mm, though many of them... It's disappointing, even though many of them had posted solidarity statements, had had done all all the stuff that white folks were doing at that point. Um, I had five organizations in total say we're not going to compete for these funds out of, you, you know, the, the hundreds that exist and that are on these, um, you know, various listservs that I'm part of. Right. And then the moment came when the Community Foundation made their announcement and they um deployed the 1.1 million of which um 85% of the funding went to black organizations 18 of which had never received funding from the community foundation before and to- in total the community foundation through this whole thing awarded to 23 black arts organizations led by black folks identifying as such whose missions are devoted to Black lives, 23 of these organizations received in total $1,082,392. Wow. Unprecedented. But I think what's more telling about that are are the number of white applicants that they had. They had 18 white applicants, and they only awarded grants to five of them, which I think also needs to be noted because – For me, equity is about how we prioritize and how we move the center of our focus on a particular group. And I think this is the thing that white organizations and white folks will have to contend as we're looking to the future. Um, The sacrifices that it will take, right? That you don't get the resources that you've been accustomed to getting, that you don't actually get the seat at the table. I think um, I think when we talk about equity, we're not we sometimes conflate that with inclusion and diversity where it's about representation. Right. How many of these things do we have Um, the bigger table? But equity is really about, you know, a limited number of seats and those seats are going to go to folks that haven't had those seats before. And this this is your time to, to sit back. Right. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Congratulations on the huge impact that was made that you started with one Facebook post and that you avalanched into a huge push. I want to mention that um, during that time, the CEO stepped down and a new CEO was implemented just before the second round of funding was given to majority black institutions for the first time. Um, there is a press release that Heather wrote that I will share in the show notes also about this whole situation. This is The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm Michelle Shireen Muri. Our guest is Heather Infantry, who helped call out and eventually write some serious injustices in her local community foundation for Greater Atlanta. We've got more info at theethicalrainmaker.com. I've heard you talk about inside versus outside strategy and organizing before, and also the importance of outside voices being involved. Can you say more about that? I think, well, what I hope one of the takeaways will be from the Community Foundation and other institutions like it is that you do a disservice to the work that you're doing when you insulate yourself from the community. Mm. That this kind of dialogue and discourse around how we do things and who we do it for needs to be two ways and it needs to be frequent and ongoing. And part of that um, includes the relationships that we build with each other across the aisle and the, and the trust that comes from that. There's no reason given the work that the community foundation has done that they should have found themselves here, right? There's so many experts in the field, so many folks that devote their life to this kind of work. It's a phone call away right? It's just a matter of like, hey, what do you think about this? And so we've got to, in our communities, um, create space for outside agitation. And it doesn't have to be agitation, right? That seems so combative and confrontational. But we've got to create space for people to share their ideas and thoughts and opinions about what we're doing. And then we got to listen to it too. We've got to listen to it. And then with regards to the sort of like inside-outside game. Will you describe the inside-outside game? Yeah, the inside-outside game, I think essentially, you know, for me, as I was trying to think about 
how to do this effort. It was, and some of it, it, you know, some of it comes from having been in Atlanta for a long time and I've come to know like a lot of the leadership and they've come to trust the work that I do. And so the inside part of it is what are those off the record conversations that you can have with people of power and influence to help advance your agenda, right? That can, um, speak to leadership that you know you can't speak to because it's just going to be perceived as combative or you're representative of a, of a, of a constituency that has no bearing or weight on what they do. But it means something to the CEO of the Community Foundation when a donor that has a $20 million fund calls them up to say, hey, what's happening here? I'm concerned. It's come across my desk. Where was the miss? Like that has much more weight because at the end of the day, that's their bottom line. That's how the foundation is funded is through the administrative fees that they take off of those funds. Mm -hmm. So if their core customer (laughs) is concerned and asking questions, then it creates the opening for us outside agitators to be heard. It gives the CEO of the company much more latitude to make the changes because now they bring those concerns to the board and the boards will was like, well, no, we've got to keep the donors happy. Just do whatever you need to do. Just fix it. Right. So I think we can't solely insulate ourselves internal to the organization and figure everything out. It's just too complicated. It's too nuanced. And we can't solely be on the outside rallying and protesting and and yelling. Right. It's it's got to be it's it's got to be this joint effort. And sometimes I think we have to be I mean, I think we have to manipulate and be sneaky. And yeah, there's got you know, tricky in some ways in order to compel people to do the right thing. To think that, you know, everybody's going to change because it's the right thing to do because we're altruistic, I think is a fallacy, right? I think sometimes right. we've got to dupe people into doing the right thing. And sometimes it's like publicly shaming them. You know, other times it's like twisting their arm behind closed doors. But as long as we've got the end goal in sight and it's not about ego, then I I think we can advance this work because it's it's a war, you know, it's it's an actual war. And um, yeah, that takes a lot of planning and thinking and strategizing and regrouping and figuring out the next way. I heard you say the other day that the inside game is when you have agitators quietly working behind the scene, inside, feeding us information, wielding their influence and power in certain ways. And then the outside game being outside pressure. When we find resistance, the tactic is to put to apply pressure in such a way that a change is forced. That's great. I said that. That's excellent. You did. I wrote it down. Yes, <laughs> that's was. great. I'm brilliant. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm a fast typist. (laughs) More of that. More of that. Yes. Yes. More of that. You also said um, that, you know, if if there was anything when I asked you what you'd like, what you would like people to really take from this episode, you said that you wanted them to know why it's important for us to protect the sanctity of outside voices weighing in to what's happening at the institution, that the institution itself can't be your only audience. You have to have other people from the outside. It's the only way that change has ever happened, right? Change, the only way that we have ever made monumental shifts in our culture around people that have been made invisible for whatever reason, it's the only way that we've ever been able to produce change is through that outside agitation. And we've always been better for it. We've always been better for that change, even though we can't see it because it it means that we don't we're not the center of of the culture anymore or you know we we're uncertain about what the future can hold but if we look back at our history it's always been the dissenters that have brought us into the fold that have advanced our civilization that have have been the the source of our progress it's those of us that are upholding these institutions protecting these institutions that have been slow to move but we always get better with it and so, yeah, I think protecting the sanctity of the, of the outside agitator is the most important thing that I want folks to take away from this. And that, you know, as a community, we have agency. 
particularly when we come together as a unified voice, there is power in that. There's absolute power and agency in that and that we can never lose sight of that. And there will be other things for which we have to advocate. So in this in this moment, build the relationships, right? That's the thing. We need to have that trust so that when time comes for us to mobilize, and there will be another time, there will be another Black Lives Matter uprising because they won't stop killing Black folks. That's not mm-hmm. going away anytime soon. Yeah. But how we, the efficiency by which we can mobilize and what we think And what we can conjure up in terms of what we want to see in terms of change, if we can begin to anticipate that while building these relationships, then I think we can move this farther along than maybe we've been able to in the past. Mm, That's so good. And that is Heather Infantry. Heather, thank you for all the work that you do. I know that you literally, what your bio on Twitter says that you identify as a foot soldier for Black liberation. And I think we just got another example. You're a known leader, a disruptor, and a change agent in your community. And all of us can take inspiration from your example in this story. And I think you um, call on all of us that are listening to do better and to step up. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. This was great. I enjoyed meeting you. That's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm Michelle Shireen Muri. Thank you so much for being with us on this journey deeper into the world of nonprofits and ethical fundraising. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so we can count you in. If you valued this conversation and want to offer financial support for more, please check out our new Patreon at theethicalrainmaker.com. We'd also love to hear your thoughts and questions, so send us any feedback to hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced and edited in Seattle, Washington by Isaac Kaplan-Wolner with socials by Rochelle Pierce. We're sponsored by my consulting collective, Freedom Conspiracy. You can find more at freedom-conspiracy.com. A special thank you to Shayna Shepard for letting us use their song, The Virus. That's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. Join us in two weeks.